The Eyes to the Left. Hello and welcome to Eyes to the Left, the Mirror's political podcast. My name is Jason Beatty and I'm joined today by my colleagues Nicola Bartlett and Dan Bloom. And we're going to discuss a really fascinating week for politics, but not necessarily a particularly kind of elevating week for the for trade. It's It's been two major stories. There's been the Windrush debacle and there's been a debate in House of Commons on Labour's problems with anti-Semitism. But what's actually lifted this is two extraordinary or three or four extraordinary speeches um, showing kind of politics at its best and worst. Um, we had a, a amazing speech from the Labour MP David Lammy on Windrush, which we'll come to discuss later, and then some very powerful, dignified, quite harrowing at times speeches from a number of Labour backbenchers in the anti-Semitism debate. Uh, so we're going to start with the Windrush uh, fiasco. Uh, where did it come from? How did it happen? Uh, and what it means for the government? So, so Nicola, do you want to explain a little bit about the background to where this story came from? Well, uh, the legacy of, of Windrush was this idea that in the post-war period, uh, members of the Commonwealth countries were invited to come to the UK, essentially to fill labour shortages. Um, and many of these people came, you know, div- set up their lives here, um, worked in the NHS, worked to build houses, build roads, and really kind of helped build the country that we now know. And the country which had been destroyed by the Second World War, so we're sure. re- rebuilding the nation for us. Yeah, and it's a really, I mean, the Windrush image of, of the ship coming over is a really powerful one because it, it was they were invited to mother britain as it were but actually a lot of those people had a really hard time when they came here you know they experienced racism they experienced difficulties and it was a very lonely experience but obviously they've gone on to to contribute loads to the country but and they um in those years they were given a kind of free pass to come and settle here but the problem then comes uh, later on when, um, I think it's in 1972, um, the government decided that those who had come over um, would have leave to, to remain. But the documentation for a lot of this, it does not stand in the way that the Home Office would want it to stand today. And we've heard kind of recently more and more cases of people um, being asked, basically being asked documentation that a lot of them don't have, or being asked to go home because they may be, it may be the Windrush generation themselves or it may be their children who have got caught in a kind of no man's land of um, their their status here. Um, and it's really taken quite a while, I think, for the government to realise how big a problem this is. It was raised at PMQs by Jeremy Corbyn. Um, but Theresa May has, has basically taken the right-wing press um, picking up on it for the government to actually respond. So, yeah, but to full credit here, should go to the Guardian, which was the first. Amelia Gentleman mm. report from the Guardian was the first to highlight these injustices, uh, and and this has been going on for for a few weeks. I mean, it suddenly snowballed at the weekend. Is that right, Dan? And we, I mean, we suddenly kind of brought Theresa May and Amber Rudd, the Home Secretary, under an awful lot of pressure to explain why they were doing this. Now, whose fault is it? Well, that's one of the main points of argument today. You know, Theresa May uh, stands up and gives this statement to PMQ saying, well, the decision to destroy a lot of their documents, because a lot of this has come out and, and has unravelled over the fact that the Home Office, uh, or the UK border agency, I should say, because it's an important distinction, 
binned a whole load of landing slips from when windwash uh, migrants arrived on the ship uh, back in the day. So this is 1954, th- I think, was the first kind of generation, wasn't it? Yeah, I think uh, late 1940s, early 1950s, yeah. people arrived, and, and right through the 60s and that sort of thing. And they, like Nicola said, had very meagre documents, but what little they had was, uh, it seems, in a basement in a building in Croydon in South London, and got shredded in late 2010, just a few months after Theresa May uh, took power. So a lot of the debate today has been about who's responsible for that. And it's a bit of a sort of red herring because Theresa May's tried to imply one way and other people have tried to imply the other, but it seems as though it was a decision by an, an agency, a bureaucrat somewhere. What Labour is now probably rightly recognising is that it maybe needs to shift the debate onto who's responsible for the whole climate. So Theresa May it was who said in 2012 or 13 that we wanted to create a hostile environment for illegal immigrants and of course she says well the focus is on illegal immigrants, I'm not talking about people who have the right to be here but of course if you're cracking down on illegal immigrants and making it hostile, it means you're making it hostile for anyone who doesn't have proof that they deserve to stay. Yeah, and, and this is the thing. I, I agree with you entirely. This kind of this kind of this kind of row about whether these documents were shredded and who was responsible for it is almost a, a distraction away from the actual much more central story of people who, who have made their home here, contributed to society, are now being faced, or in some cases we think they have been deported as a result. Again, it's very unclear, because the Home Office has called them a hop about this. Well, that's uh, extraordinary. Is yeah. Amber Rudd, as the Home Secretary, has stood up in the House of Commons and said, we don't know if anyone was deported because of this. We don't think they were at the moment, from what we know, but we don't know. And again... Two days after this was raised, the minister is on the TV this morning again saying, we don't know. Yeah. So on Monday, Amber Rudd was, was, was uh, summoned to the House of Commons for an urgent question by David Lammy, who gave, as I said, this very powerful speech. The relationship between this country and the West Indies and Caribbean is inextricable. The first British ships arrived in the Caribbean in 1623, and despite slavery... Despite colonisation, 25,000 Caribbeans served in the First World War and Second World War alongside British troops. When my parents and their generation arrived in this country under the Nationality Act of 1948, they arrived here as British citizens. It is inhumane and cruel for so many of that Windrush generation to have suffered so long in this condition and for the Secretary of State only to have made a statement today on this issue. Can she explain how many have been deported? She suggested earlier that she would ask the High Commissioners. It is her department that has deported them. She should know the number. Can she tell the House how many have been detained as prisoners in their own country? Can she tell the House how many have been denied health under the National Health Service? How many have denied pensions? How many have lost their job? This is a day of national shame, and it has come about because of a hostile environment policy that was begun under her Prime Minister. Let us call it as it is. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. And that is what has happened with this far-right rhetoric in this country. Can she apologise properly? Can she explain how quickly this team will act 
to ensure that the thousands of British men and women denied their rights in this country under her watch in the Home Office are satisfied. Attacking the whole ethos, as you say, of a climate created by Theresa May's very hardline anti-immigration policy. Now, this was part of the last Cameron government where she kind of pandered to the anti-immigration lobby. For my mind, it was exactly the same people who are now saying this is deplorable, who are the ones who whipped up this this kind of culture of, 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 of almost hatred, I think. Uh, and and David Lamy, you know, turned on and said, look, you lie down with, with dogs, you get fleas. You know, this is, you, this is part of what you, you try to do for, I think, very cheap political gain. You know, they could have made the case that immigration is a force for good. They, they, they could have made the case that, you know, uh, that what we inviting people to our country isn't necessarily socially divisive, but actually can create a cohesive, more exciting, better country. Uh, and in the back of my mind of this was I, I went up two weeks ago to Birmingham to uh, do a piece on the 50th anniversary of the Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech. And I actually spoke to quite a few members of the Windrush generation when I was up there. Uh, and But the overwhelming impression you got from Birmingham and the people I was talking to, I went to this wonderful retirement home where they had an awful lot of people from, from the Caribbean, but they had Irish people, they had Scottish people, they had people who'd married Bangladesh, white women from Scotland who'd married a Bangladeshi man in Birmingham. And you've got this great sense of a, a model almost of how you have a cohesive Britain. Uh, and, and this was what the government, I thought, had a choice in between 20 kind of 10 and 2016. They could have celebrated that and instead they went for a much more divisive kind of way of, of, of kind of making political points. Well, it's the, it comes down to this whole argument about good immigrants and bad immigrants and it seems as though good immigrants are the ones who came 50 years ago who you sort of, you know, idealised and they, they were rebuilding the country after the war and all that sort of thing and then bad immigrants are people coming over now and even today Theresa May says in the House of Commons we're talking about the Windrush generation they're very different from the people who are coming now and, you know, it's perhaps in 50 years' time it would yeah. be exactly the same thing that, you know, that this people coming over now from the EU from, say, Eastern Bloc countries and that sort of thing that won't be viewed as controversial. It will they'll just be part of the fabric of society and it will just be, you know, who we are. And I, it's, it's such an important point. I mean, if you look at the kind of the history of immigration, each set of new arrivals, whether you're going to go back to kind of, you know, the Huguenots coming from France or the, kind of, the, 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 the Jewish people who came in the kind of 19th century and the early of 20th century, or the, it was the Irish who came over in large numbers following the kind of, you know, the potato starvation, the potato famine, uh, you know, each generation gets denigrated and then becomes part of the fabric of our country. And it's, it's quite, you know, and what you're seeing, this is again, you know, as you say, it's this kind of idea that suddenly these are acceptable, as so other immigrants aren't, which I consider, it seems a very kind of, kind of slightly base argument to me. Uh, I think that's why this is especially um, a, a case of, of Theresa May really failing politically, because these are her so-called good immigrants, the, the Windrush generation. You know, they tick all the boxes. This idealised vision of the Commonwealth working hand in hand with Britain, and yet these are the ones who, by her own policies, now how directly the intricacies of it, you know, will probably come out in in weeks to come. But as you say, this environment is what's caused these problems. Now, David Lammy 
obviously is MP for Tottenham. He will have a lot of constituents who are members of the Windrush generation and um, their children and grandchildren. And he will be, as all London MPs and other MPs are used to, he will have so much immigration casework. You know, all of the problems that the Home Office, you know, arguably in some cases deliberately cause people to make it more difficult for them to stay. He will have seen that. And I think we saw his just exasperation and his anger and he you know he's recently spoken out a lot about the violence um in london and other cities um and i think he's he's someone who feels a great responsibility to speak up especially for his part of of london and his community in a sense and i think you know that was a really powerful speech and i think what you say about the choice the Tories had on immigration is really pertinent because I think it, the Tories had the power really more than a Labour government would have done to reframe this debate about immigration. And, it, you know, people have been sharing a lot of the images from the Olympics opening ceremony in 2012 when the children of a Windrush generation kind of played the part of their parents and they were celebrated as part of this kind of melting pot Britain. And, you know, it just that image just makes you think of the alternative and the choice that that has been taken by the Tories. Yeah, and I, it's such an important point that, that politicians probably have much more power than they realise. But the language they use, mm. whether it's on welfare, when you talk about shirk or drivers, which is what Osborne did, yeah. and when they were pushing through their welfare cuts, or whether it's on immigration, they set the tone for the national debate. And it's a, I don't sometimes I think they may not be aware of how much they can do this. So attitudes shift with it because they if people you know if you start using language, and you start setting people against each other, it infects the whole of the, the, the national conversation. Um, in terms of um, Dan, in terms of kind of Windrush, how, how damaging has this been for, for Theresa May and Amber Rudd? Um, and I noticed as a kind of sidebar, it's reopened wounds within the Tory party on Brexit, with an awful lot of people gunning for Amber Rudd, who is a Remainer. Big uh, Remainer. And, uh, and so there's that problem, but there's the problem of uh, overshadowing a Commonwealth summit, and which was, you know, Tories may have to apologise to other Commonwealth leaders. Uh, and then there's kind of other questions about, you know, if they can't get this right, how the hell are they, is the Home Office going to manage the registration of three million EU nationals who are going to have to require settled status in this country. Well, I think you've, you've said it all. Um, Guy Hofstadt, who is uh, probably not the friendliest voice towards Britain in the Brexit debate, who is the European Parliament's Brexit uh, coordinator, mm. and he stood up for MEPs today and said, I've got an urgent meeting with the Home Office because if, I paraphrase, but if they can't sort this out with people who arrived 50 years ago, how are they supposed to sort EU citizens? Because it's the same thing. They tell the Windrush generation, if you came before a cut-off date, it was uh, New Year's Eve 1972, then you can stay. And they tell, they're tell they telling the EU citizens, if you come before New Year's Eve 2020, you can stay. And that's a bit of a worrying parallel there. And, and they're all having to apply to the Home Office. They've already hired at least a thousand, I think it is, extra staff to deal with it, it's going to be a lot of paperwork. And what happens when you get down the line decades from now with uh, the children of EU citizens who are here now? Uh, you know, what if people slip through the cracks and don't register properly? It's probably 
right to be concerned, though whether you know what the motives are for voicing that concern is another debate. Yeah, you know? I, I've heard lots of anecdotal stories of, of EU nationals who, you know, their, their mothers came here in kind of like, you know, kind of 30 or 40 years ago, didn't work because they had a much more traditional role mm. of being a kind of, you know, a homemaker. Uh, and because they've never worked, they've got no documentation. Uh, and they're kind of in limbo. I've, I've frequent stories, it was raised by the Tory MP Stephen Crabb this week of a, a case he's t- t- still waiting after five years for Home Office to resolve of two e- a child born to two EU nationals who has no not yet been given the kind of right to, to get a passport to the UK. This is very common stuff. As you mentioned earlier, Labour MPs will tell you that the biggest, biggest post bag, the biggest number of constituency cases is to do with immigration. So you do wonder how, how the Home Office, which is not famed for its kind of organisational skills, is going to manage. Yeah, it's, it's nothing to do with what the rules are. Obviously, they're saying, you know, all the EU citizens can stay and all Windridge people can stay. The issue is on the day-to-day competence of whoever's sending out the letters. Yeah. So, you know, junior officials who have very, very complicated rules to follow. They don't have complete information. It's about the practicality. And I think it's also uh, about the atmosphere that this creates for people. You know, uh, a lot of my friends who are EU citizens really don't feel very welcome in this country um, because of the reluctance for the Prime Minister to guarantee their right to stay for so long. It, it was really kind of like getting blood out of a stone for her to give that guarantee. And, it, she, and this idea that she was using EU nationals in this country as kind of pawns in the negotiation I think really took hold um, and as you say you know faith in in the home office as an institution is is not particularly high um, and I think that you know you talk you've talked about or we've talked about kind of you know the power of language the power of what politicians say and with this kind of hostile atmosphere that the Brexiteers are obviously doing nothing to dispel. You know, it just makes it really difficult for people. These aren't just forms, these aren't just decisions, these aren't just processes. They're people's lives in limbo. They can't plan, they can't buy houses, they don't know if they're going to be able to stay and put their kids in schools. Um, and I, I think, you know, you would hope that this would be a smoother process in the 21st century with more documentation and computers and so on. But, you know, I can totally understand why people are really concerned at the moment. Yeah, and, and here's the added irony, is that post-Brexit, we're probably going to need more migrants rather than fewer. We have a, a major skills shortage. And, and also, if you want a trade deal with India, the first demand will be, we want visas. We want visas for our workers, we want visas for our tourists. Very, very hard to come by at the moment. And India's going to say, look, we want at least, you know, 10 to 20, 30,000 visas mm. a year more. And, and that's going to be a tough sell for a prime minister who spent the last six or seven years in office kind of pandering to anti-immigration sentiment. And she's always made this kind of very uncomfortable bed she's now got to lie in because, it's, it, you know, she, from the start, if she'd made the case of immigration and said, look, we want controls, but there's a positive aspect mm. to it, it would be a much easier sell for her. Yeah, and there's actually sort of anecdotal evidence to suggest that some um, British citizens with Indian heritage voted for Brexit thinking that it would mean higher, um, a, a larger number of people from India um, would be allowed to come here and from other countries. So, you know, there's a, there's a whole 
difficulty around this this issue and you know whether she has the foresight to appreciate that that's that's only going to get more complicated as you know the negotiations hot up um i'm not sure that she seems to be you know on most things reacting to events so this is something she's really going to have to confront further down the line i think yeah. And at the bottom of all of this was this artificial target of reducing net migration to under 100,000 a year, which um, they still haven't met. I mean, it's, they... it's bonkers because more people come from the rest of the world where we have a fully-fledged visa system and control mm. the numbers than the target, let alone everyone from the EU. So, you know, they haven't got anywhere near bringing it below that target. Anywhere yeah. near it. So just very quickly... Uh, this got raised, you said, Dan, earlier at Prime Minister's questions. How, how do you think Jeremy Corbyn did? I mean, it was kind of, you, I mean, you could t- tell he felt very passionate about the subject. Did, I didn't think he landed many blows on it. I think he struggled because Theresa May tried to flat-foot him with talking about these documents that were destroyed and saying, well, it was taken under a Labour government. And his attacking point had been it was taken under a Tory government. And I think we've had some clarification this afternoon that it was actually a bit of both because the general decision was taken in 2009 and then the specific decision was taken in 2010. Like I say, it, it made him a little bit off target and it's a shame really because, like we were saying, that's kind of tangential to the whole thing, Whether you know which agency decided to destroy some documents. The Home Office has already said that these documents weren't needed to prove people's status. I mean, a whistleblower has um, disputed that. But the Home Office is quite clear about saying, you know, you might not have proof of your documents, uh, so just send in your school records, your marriage certificates and everything. So she sort of dragged it deliberately into a slightly blind alley about fussing over the year 2009 or 2010, and that distracted the debate a little bit. And I think Jeremy Corbyn got onto it, back onto it at the last question where he said, you know, you've put people in fear for their livelihood with your hostile environment and your go-home vans and all that sort of thing. But he took a while to get there. He took yeah. a while to get there. And then, you know, he, he finished saying, you know, when you're, you were in the Home Office, you were kind of, you know, hopeless and heartless. Now you're in government, you're callous and incompetent. And yeah. I'm using this as a shame, shameless link to the next subject. Theresa May then obviously came back almost predictably with, with the on the callous line of I will not take any lessons from somebody who's allowed anti-Semitism to be rife in the Labour Party. Now, this was kind of the, given to the Prime Minister almost on a plate as a result of uh, one of the more extraordinary debates I've seen in watching Parliament for almost 20 years now, which was uh, the debate um, organised by the Conservatives but dominated by Labour on anti-Semitism. Um, and it was kind of it was quite hard listening at times, wasn't it? You had um, Luciana Berger, Labour MP for Liverpool Wave Three, um, um, Jewish. You had Ruth Smith, Jewish, uh, Stoke on Trent Labour MP. You had Margaret Hodge. Uh, you had John Mann. You had Ian Austin. Um, and that's just to name a few of them, all giving very, very passionate, um, and at times, as I say, kind of um, harrowing speeches on what it's like to be a victim of anti-Semitic abuse and some of them, not all of them, were very angry with, with Corbyn on this um, they were you know, as I say, I mean, Ruth Smith used her speech to uh, cite how a lot of the abuse was done in the name of Jeremy Corbyn and she kind of read out some of the 
very vile insults which being thrown at her and then said you know that one had hashtag you know Jeremy for PM you know this one said hashtag Corbyn I must warn the house that my fan base has shown scant regard for appropriate parliamentary language so I apologise in advance Hang yourself, you vile, treacherous Zionist Tory filth. You are a cancer of humanity. Ruth Smead is a Zionist. She has no shame and trades on the murder of Jews by Hitler, who the Zionists betrayed. Ruth Smead must surely be travelling first class to Tel Aviv with all that slush. After all, she's complicit in trying to bring Corbyn down. First job for Jeremy Corbyn tomorrow. Expel the Zionist bycom smear hag bitch Ruth Smead from the party. This Ruth Smead is Britannophobic. We need to cleanse our nation of these types. Hashtag JC for PM. Deselect Ruth Smeave ASAP. Poke the pig. Get all the Zionist child skiller scum out of Labour. What is so heartbreaking is the concerted effort in some quarters to downplay the problem. For every comment like those you have just heard, you can find ten people ready to dismiss it, yep. to cry smear, yeah. to say that we are weaponising anti-Semitism. Yeah. 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 Weaponising yeah. anti-Semitism. My family came to this country fleeing the pogroms in the 19th century. Of our relatives who stayed in Europe, none survived. We know what anti-Semitism is. We know where it leads. How dare these people suggest that we would try something so dangerous, so toxic, so formative to our lives and those of our families? How dare they seek to dismiss something so heinous, to reduce it to the realm of political point scoring? How dare they, Madam Deputy Speaker? I stand here today to say that we will not be bullied out of political engagement. We are going nowhere and we stand and will keep fighting until the evils of anti-Semitism have been removed from our society. Do you think um, Jeremy Corbyn is on top of this, Nicola? Do you think he's kind of finally registered? I mean, he, he was sat in for some of the debate and then left and then came back again. He was completely stony-faced throughout of it. I think this is, this is a real problem for Corbyn. Um, whether he gets it on a personal level or not, I would hope that he does, he's not conveyed that at all. You know, that you could argue that's a real PR thing, but getting up to leave while your own MPs are telling you this, as you say, absolutely appalling abuse that they've suffered with some people who claim to be his supporters, you know, to, to leave the chamber at that point um, just just looked terrible. And he didn't speak in that debate. Now, you know, you could say that, that Theresa May didn't speak for the Tories, but when he knows that this is something that, that really gets put at his door uh, time and time again... I think, you know, if he had said something um, during the debate, if he had, you know, been able to acknowledge the, the pain that has been caused by some of these people. Now, obviously, you know, he has no control over people doing, making these, what is hate crime, um, and purporting to support him. But I think there is quite a strong evidence that, this kind of attitude has been allowed breathing space within the Labour Party. Now, uh, there are obviously uh, people who whose anti-Semitism comes from different places, but this particular strain of hard-left anti-Semitism, where it's often linked to discussions about the state of Israel or um, anti-Zionism and so on, has really bubbled up 
since he became leader. And you might have seen it on the fringes of the party in previous years, but some of the people who are you know, spouting this abuse are now in positions of power within the party. They might be CLP chairs, they might hold you know, different positions within local branches, but I think people have been really slow to call it out. And I think, to be fair to the party, I don't think they actually have the staff to deal with all these people. Their compliance unit is trying to deal with a, a party that has just grown so much in the past few years. Um, and I think, you know, pe the people will say, some, a, a small proportion, I think, of Jeremy Corbyn supporters say that it is being weaponised um, by people who are against him or by Tory supporters. But the point is, it is there. Now, whether people are weaponising it or not, the, the Labour Party's problem that it is there and they need to, to get rid of it. Yeah, I, I've had that, you know, we've got the local elections coming up at the beginning of May. They're saying this is kind of, you know, um, concocted almost, uh, you know, to kind of damage Jeremy as much as possible. I, I thought some of the MPs speaking yesterday were very powerful on this. Did you, did you not agree? They're kind of demolishing that argument. Yeah, they, I think they just went straight in, you know, where the point is and on the personal effect on them and that sort of thing. And there were a few, a few MPs who, uh, you know, Ruth Smead, Luciana Berger, who, who were applauded by both sides um, at the end of their speeches just, just for describing the abuse that they've received and some of it claiming to be in Jeremy Corbyn's name. And to echo what Nicholas said, you know, it's, it's only the very small number of people who would ever claim that Jeremy Corbyn is an anti-Semite. But the problem is in the response to something that exists in a minority of people, some of whom like to shout about their anti-Semitism online. And he just doesn't ever seem to have really been on the front foot and gone out and given some big speech saying, you know, this is this is why it's happened before press coverage has sort of reached its zenith. It's always been just afterwards or alongside and that sort of thing. And just examples like walking out of the debate. Yes, Theresa May wasn't there, uh, but she's also not the one who's been in all the headlines and, you know, whether he likes the right-wing press or not, it's been in the left-wing press as well. You know, something can at once be weaponized and exist and be a problem they're not mutually exclusive yeah i, I kind of thought this is the problem isn't it he, he i mean he's put out plenty of statements saying you know i deplore anti-semitism he said enough is enough we have to have zero tolerance of it what he hasn't done which is i think is quite important he's never actually confronted the people doing this in his own name he's never said you do not speak for me Mm. And, and that's quite, and I, he just won't turn on them at all. And, and I think that's, that's the lack of kind of bravery there by Corbyn, which is exasperating people so much. And, uh, and I thought the other thing which I thought was fascinating from the debate yesterday, apart from the, the sheer bravery of the MPs doing this, and you remember that MPs are usually in Parliament to speak on behalf of the voiceless and the vulnerable, and here they are actually having to use the safety of Parliament mm. to speak for themselves, was... They have to keep reminding people, you know, this is our movement. We have been in this party a long, long time. You know, our views, are, is, is, they were under threat because of the, 
who they were born, which I thought was extraordinary. Yeah, and I think, you know, just hearing the abuse, especially when Ruth Smith read it out one mm. after the other, and imagining that on a daily basis. I mean, I've looked at some of the, st- the um, tweets that Luciana Berger receives, and it is just relentless, and it's horrific, and some of it's, you know, Nazi era, um, anti-Jewish propaganda, and it's really, really awful. And I just can't imagine the effect on, on you on a personal level to receive that. You know, whenever I've received online abuse, it's been the odd bit, and you feel awful. Yeah. So for her to get that day in, day out, well, and from people who And are, these MP staff, don't forget yes, that. They're the, the ones who have to, you know shoulder a lot of it yeah I mean that's that's really not something anybody should have to contend with and you know to for for it to come from people who some of it not all of it but some of it coming from people who are Labour Party members must just feel like being attacked by you know your party by your people as it were and Dan as I mentioned earlier you've got we've got the elections on May the 3rd Labour it's still predicted to do very well in them. But do you think uh, that Corbyn's response to Syria, the problem with anti-Semitism, uh, may looking slightly more confident than she was, uh, do you think Labour is going to do as well as predicted now, or do you think it's still kind of, it could be a much more kind of level competition? Obviously, it will affect how some people vote. Everything affects how some people vote but when I was on the local paper for three or four years and covering politics we almost never covered what was happening in parliament internationally in the Labour Party we were covering who was collecting the bins who messed up the sell-off of the local school I think the answer was everyone on that one (laughs) but you know who messed this up locally who did this it was specific issues about competence and day-to-day stuff and I think it's very easy for us to overestimate uh, how important Westminster and what Westminster is talking about is in people's minds when they go to the polls especially when they're voting for local councillors where the turnout's really low it's always really low and a lot of the people engaged enough to vote are it's might even be one of two extremes they might be super super ideological so they go on there to put that red or that blue cross on the uh, sheet no matter what or they're really locally involved so they're they're not really thinking about that stuff yeah Yeah. never underestimate the importance of local issues in local elections (laughs) in some ways the worst possible (laughs) barometer for, for, for the national picture uh, and yet we will spend a long time examining the results may come in on oh, yeah, May the 3rd and May the 4th, trying yeah, to the... read into it what it means. <laughs> but yeah. also, just a note of caution, is um, local elections are comparing to a sort of fairly arbitrary point four years before mm. t- the most recent local election. Yeah. You're not, because it's a rolling thing. Uh, most A lot of councils put up a third of their councillors or half yeah. of the time. So it, you can get sort of broad picture, but it's not compared to when Jeremy Corbyn took power, we're still comparing to the Ed Miliband era. Well, as we were talking about just before we started this conversation, we, you know, it's, it's a year to the day since Theresa May called that election after her misguided walking holiday in Wales. Um, it's Brenda Day, by calling it, after <laughs> Brenda from Bristol, who's interviewed saying, oh no, not again. And just before the general election, 
they had local elections where the Tories did extraordinarily well. Labour lost more than 400 seats and it had no bearing at all on the general election results. So that's a kind of very good example um, of, of how kind of, <laughs> kind of bad a barometer they are of, 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 of the national picture. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, you, you you have to bear in mind where is where these elections are taking place. Um, you know, they were particularly bad places for Labour last year. They were the kind of county the county, councils. yeah, the, the shires and so on. Um, they also may have served as a little bit of a wake up call for Labour um, and galvanised them in a bit. And also maybe the opposite way made the Tories a bit complacent. Um, I mean, the London elections, Labour is expected to do very well but that won't surprise anyone um there are two councils in it well three councils potentially that labor could take from the tories and i think those will be kind of the interesting ones to watch this is in london yeah which are well barnet is currently no overall control um was tory yeah just by one (laughs) one councillor yeah has quite a large jewish population very like yeah if you take places like hendon um parts of green um very large Jewish population whether you know people locally would say that some of that has cut through um, but whether that plays out in local elections is also one of these so-called easy councils who outsourced everything and the other places are Westminster and Wandsworth and I think Wandsworth has been Tory for as long as most people can I remember. Think, yeah, I'm, I'm at 1971. Right. It's very good. I met a Labour activist who's sort of frothing at the idea of taking Westminster yeah. and saying, if we do it, it'll be amazing. And I'm saying, are you actually going to do it though? We might. <laughs> and outside London, we're looking at Trafford as well, mm. which is the one Tory bit of controlled Greater Manchester. So It's a very wealthy part of Greater Manchester um, where they normally return Tories to the um, to Parliament as well. But, um, yeah, I mean, it will be... It would be interesting to watch. And there's a couple of West Midlands, which I think are also under no control at the moment, which mm. they hope they can take, when Labour can win full control of. But generally, um, I think the picture may emerge yet again, as, as we saw at the general election, is Labour will pile up votes in the metropolitan areas, mm. but not make as much headway as they'd like. I'm happy to be proved wrong on this, <laughs> by the way. I think um, the West Midlands is, is, is a particularly interesting area to look at that because it, it you know you have a lot of marginal parliamentary seats in that area and you have um you know you you have working class communities who may support labor not always as big a fan of corbyn and some of his policies particularly on national security so i think that that would be interesting but also as dan said you know it, a lot of it does come down to local issues and also the the manpower have Labour translated all their new membership into actually people going out and knocking on doors in some areas it seems like they have and others maybe not so much yeah and interestingly just as a last note on this local elections is that UKIP is only fielding 600 candidates and something for like for 4,000 seats am I right more or less so I can't remember the numbers but it, I yeah. know it's I know it's quite low yeah so they really are a spent force yeah well they they actually announced they announced the number themselves because they were proud of it because the new leader oh okay when the new leader <laughs> came in which was a couple of months ago and and ousted uh, henry bolton and he's now in without an election his name is gerard batten household name <laughs> um and he said 
I've done fantastically well to get all these candidates because uh, Henry Bolton had no preparations at all for the local elections when I took over. So, you know, look how well I've done. It just shows how the party that bring this entire podcast very neatly full circle that drove the Tories Mm. to create the hostile environment for immigrants in the first place is now a spent force and, you know, a tiny influence in reality on on politics and what councillors and things they have are largely left over from that period when they were doing very well. What a wonderfully neat way of drawing all the strands together, Dan. (laughs) I I, I couldn't have done it better myself. We we will be back again soon with another podcast next week. I've got a special guest and and then in a couple of weeks' time, I think we will come together and discuss and form the, the, the kind of post-mortem on the, on the local elections. So as I said, on May 3rd, we'll try and do one on May 4th or something to, to see how they go, see if our predictions are right or wrong. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Um, you can follow me on Twitter as at JBTMirror. Nicola's on Twitter. Nicola R. Bartlett. Dan? Dan Bloom 1. Brilliant. Um, please go to our website, which is mirror.co.uk forward slash eyes that's a-y-e-s you can register leave messages we will try and look into them pick them up if they're interesting ones uh and we'll be back soon thank you